Welcome to Non-Obvious with Hugh Hansen. And welcome, Ansley, uh, to uh, <laughs> this podcast. Uh, so how long have actually we known each other? Do you have any idea about that? I was thinking about that question, and I think we met in 2012. It was the first time I went to the Fordham IP conference. I was a junior associate, uh, Alan and Overy at the time, and um, who have been sponsors for a while. And uh, Jeremy Phillips also was encouraging me for years before that to go to the Fordham IP conference. So that was the first year I went. And that's, I think, the first year I met you. So it's been a while. Yeah, yeah. How's Jeremy doing? Do you uh, stay in touch with him? Um, sporadically. Um, he, when he said he was going to retire from the IP cat, he really didn't mean it. He did decide that's, that's it. I'm, I'm kind of, I've done my um, dedication to IP. I'm going to go and you know, do different things and spend time with my family. Um, so there's many of us who um, either get to see him or um, still communicate with him, but he's he's very happy doing his kind of next chapter of, of, uh, of life. Um, we spoke to him probably more during the transition after he left the IPCAT blogs to make sure that we were on the right track or he's always, he's always open to get an email from any of us if we ever have a question. Wow. Um, but it's it's quite amazing to think such a strong presence in IP is <laughs> it has a life after IP. Yeah, I mean the interesting thing about lawyers, one is they're the last to give up their careers. If you look in the United States, I have you know colleagues from college and have that they're long retired, and, and then I look at the ones who are lawyers or academics, uh, and they're not retired. There's something about the law. The law is a jealous mistress. They used to say because it attracts you actually more than family life and everything else. Those days are gone, thank goodness. But um, there's something about, I don't know, the intellectual component of the law that seems to keep people going. Uh, and I think it's probably a good thing. That's why I was so surprised by his retirement because, uh, and pretty young, uh, relatively speaking for these things. Um, and uh, he's mm -hmm. very good, very interesting. Uh, and I thought it was quite a, a loss, but you guys have followed in uh, and done a wonderful job uh, at IPCAT. Would you say your main function, what is your main function, if there is one? IPCAT, law, saving the world in these various organizations you're in. Um, so if you had to say, uh, someone doing a biography and they said, well, what was the main thing you did in these years? Was there a main thing or did you do it all? All right, what was the main thing? Uh, if Ansley was expressed as a function, it would be making things better, I think. And I, that's, that's kind of a, a broad statement, but it encapsulates everything that I try to do in a lot of aspects of my life which is, you know, from the kind of legal litigation practice, I want, I do want to make the law better, or I want to make it clearer. I want to make it more certain. I want to make it fairer. Uh, from the IP cap perspective, I want to uh, make um, our 
industry and our profession better in the sense that we're exchanging ideas and we're debating with each other and we're giving information out. And um, with my extracurriculars, you know, I do a lot of diversity work. I want to make the profession better for everyone, um, women, men, however they identify coming into our profession. So um, I also want to make the, the better pasta when I, <laughs> when I make food. I always am try, trying to strive to make things a bit better, no matter what it is. Um, some people might say that's a bit idealistic, uh, and I think I probably am idealistic, but uh, I always want to just to leave things a bit better than when I left them. Well, that's great. That's great. Uh, so you're going to leave uh, non-obvious with you, Hanson, better than when you came. Without a doubt, without okay. a doubt, I will. Yes. This, as I said, this is this is my um, nice little segue into my weekend. It will just set the tone just right. Oh, that's a. I have a whole list of questions here, but what do you normally do? You just enjoy life on a weekend, or is that just an extension of the week? Um, and well, it depends what's happened in the week. Um. I think as many litigators will attest to, sometimes your weekends are not your own because you have deadlines the following week. So uh, the weekends kind of do not exist. I think of, uh, as I've gotten older, I have tried to carve out that time, that kind of dis, you know, distinguish, uh, distinguishing feature between weekday and, and weekend. Um, as a more junior lawyer and as someone who is so, so hungry to you know, establish oneself in the profession, I was spending most of my weekends doing Nike Cat, you know, six, seven, eight hours, you know, Saturday and Sunday. Um, and I don't have that <laughs> in me anymore to do that, that kind of at that level. So because I just, I am starting to recognize the importance of having a little bit of a break. Um, otherwise, you kind of lose touch of who you are. You're just otherwise a machine for, you know, churning through work or churning through posts or whatever. So I, I do. I do try to carve that time out. Okay. All right. Now, let me, uh, where were you born? Um, this, will, this whole story, I think, will take up half of your podcast because <laughs> I've been everywhere. I was born in Las Cruces, New Mexico, about 45 minutes from the border of Mexico, New Mexico. And uh, why were you born there? Um, so my parents, um, who are from Northern California, um, they are both academics and as I'm sure many of your listeners who are academics will appreciate, you generally go where their positions are and where, where the interesting work is. And, um, my parents, uh, went from California, they met in Nevada, they spent time in Northern Colorado, and then they ended up at NMSU in Las Cruces. And oh, um, I ended up where? That's where I was born. And uh, NMSU, New Mexico State University in okay. Las Cruces. Yeah, don't so use that. Hold, hold it, hold it. <laughs> Abbreviations, acronyms, no, because we have a lot of people okay. who don't know any of this. So then you you are permitted to go back to the acronym or go to the once you okay. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So. Uh, okay, so how long were you there? Uh, I was there, I think, until I was about six, uh, six or seven. And then we, again, moved for an academic job. And then you went to uh, Omaha 
um, my mother got a, um, a position at University of Nebraska Omaha. And um, my uh, dad um, was visiting there as well, but was um, going back between New Mexico and Nebraska. So I've, uh, I, that's when I started kind of, uh, kind of alive to the world where you could work in multiple places. Um, and that, that has definitely informed you know, my desire to work um, and study and learn not just based in the in London, but also the U.S. and other parts of parts of the world. So that was the first entree to um, uh, the kind of nomadic life of an academic, which is informed. So, so how long were you in life Omaha? as a lawyer? How, how long uh, were you in Omaha? Uh, we were there for five years, um, and I should say there there was a, a period of time when we were in New Mexico that my dad took a sabbatical in the United Kingdom. And that was when I was a baby. That was when I was 18 months old. And um, again, academic nomadic parents. So we flew to the UK and we lived in the UK um, for a while and then came back. Uh, then we were in Nebraska. And then from Nebraska, uh, we were there for five years. And then uh, my mom decided to uh, take me. Uh, my sister was already at college at this point to, um, to the UK. And she had a position uh, at a university um, in Newcastle. So um, again, here I am <laughs> as a child of academics moving so how, into how, how old, a, uh, how old were you when a different you country. To, how old were you when you went to uh, Newcastle? Uh, well, first time when I was uh, 18 months old, when I was uh, for my dad's sabbatical. And then um, later I was, I think I was... Um, how old would I have been? Well, 11, or 13, 11 or 12. So you've been, and then you, since then, you've been mostly in the UK? Um, so I was there in Newcastle for, for about five, five years or so. Um, but in between that, we did a little bit of time in Texas. Again, academic position there. Um, and then after I did ostensibly high school in the UK, um, I went back to New Mexico and I started studying chemical engineering um, at the University of New Mexico, where my dad um, was um, department chair of engineering. So, and I was there for a couple of years before um, my mother and her utmost wisdom um, said, you know, yeah, we, I, we know that you like science and technology, but you also love music and art. And actually, um, intellectual property has everything. So why don't you stop what you're doing and go to law school in the UK, um, which helps because it's cheaper to go to law school in the UK as opposed to the US. And um, then I went back to the UK. So it's, it's a very complicated story going back and forth and back and forth. But ultimately, as soon as I decided to study law, um, I've been in the UK ever since. Well, you went to the University of Bristol. Correct. How was that? Um, it was a culture shock for me. Um, I'd already done, you know, the, the first few years of uh, university already, um, and I'd already been with people a lot older than me. I I had spent a academic career where I had skipped grades up and down throughout that time, and I had been two years ahead by the point that I went to Bristol. And so I was now back with my actual age group, which was a little bit of a strange um, 
culture shock uh, because they were just starting out with a university experience and away from parents. And um, there's definitely a very strong drinking culture in the UK, as opposed to some parts of the US at least. Um, so it was a little bit of like a, a, I was just kind of out of sorts because I was like, well, oh, the, one, these, one, I've never one, been with my age group. Well, one thing is you thought you were much more mature than them. Correct. I, I, yeah. <laughs> you, pr you probably yeah, were. I would, I would think so. Uh, yes, and I was trying to like assimilate to the culture um, and try to make friends, but a lot of that consisted of uh, over getting really, really drunk, um, and then trying to piece it together the next morning. And that was just not really a speed I was used to. I've had to kind of modulate how I navigate that since I've been in the UK. But that that was really a surprise to me. And the, the other thing that was a surprise to me is that how uh, infrequent my interactions with professors were. I was coming from a U American university system where, you know, my days were full of, of classes, lectures and labs and, you know, office hours and everything. And um, in the UK university system, uh, in law at least, it's not like this in the sciences, but you maybe had six or seven contact hours a week. Um, and then everything else you were just teaching yourself. And so that was really odd for me. I felt like I was doing a lot of the kind of studying myself. Um, so it's, it was a definitely a culture shock in that aspect as well. Um, well, which and, system uh, was better for learning? For me, I think the American system is better for learning. Um, I think this as well, because in the UK system, you start picking in, in high school, um, you start picking the courses that you want to study. So you start with a kind of a wide number of, of classes and then you narrow, narrow down. So by the time you're in your, for example, your senior year of high school, to use the American nomenclature, you're maybe studying three subjects. And I think it's really, you know, ridiculous that at the age of, you know, 16 or before you're saying, oh, I'm not going to do math anymore, or I'm not going to do history or the arts anymore. I mean, what does a 16 year old know at that point? I mean, you know, offense to my 16 year old self, but I didn't know. Um, and to, for me to, you know, I was put in that position to pick which subjects and I was picking really random subjects, you know. The, the doctors already identified themselves at 16. So I'm doing chemistry and biology and math. And then the you know, liberal arts people were just doing history and English literature, et cetera. Um, but you never know. You never know what your passion is gonna be or where things are gonna lie. Whereas in the American system, you have to keep even the first two, you know, two and a half years of university, you have to do subjects. You have to continue to do math, continue to do French, et cetera, and then make a decision. So I think that grounding is better. Um, and it's also, we see this a lot more now, the, the, the system of um, education in the UK has become so bureaucratic and so test-driven that um, it's always culminating to the final test. You know, at the end of the year, everything that you've done, you're gauged on that. Whereas in the American system, you have these checkpoints throughout, you know, the academic year to test how you're doing. And we saw how that, that system doesn't work very well um, and as a result of the pandemic, where, you know, these students weren't able to take their final year exams because of social distancing and stay-at-home orders, and all that the, they could do is just kind of guess 
by what the teachers kind of felt the capabilities of their students were throughout the year, but they didn't have, you know, pop quizzes or essays or homework or midterms to give them a fairer kind of reflection. So I see, I think we saw a little bit of the kind of the flaws in the system. And I'm sure there's many people who will object to everything I've said, but, you know, having experienced both systems, I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, the grounding of an American education. Did you ever want to teach yourself? Yeah, I guess my uh, my mom always she always uh, keeps kind of chiming in every now and again, being like, well, "Why don't you just go to university and teach? You'd be really good at it." Um, I uh, my sister's a teacher um, as well. Uh, both my parents obviously are academics and and are teachers. Um, I really love it. And I think that's that's what I really enjoyed about IPCAT is that I felt that the writing was almost kind of teaching people who may not be familiar with the jurisdiction or the type of law or the industry, what's going on. Um, and so that has given me an outlet. Um, and I continue to teach on my, my job with, you know, junior lawyers that are coming up within my team. Um, but that's something I'm all definitely consider at some point if you know if I ever transition out of private practice that that is something I would really like to do because you get so much out of it and you learn so much yourself from that process which it would make my mom really happy she'd be like finally we got you <laughs> uh so where are your parents now um right right now they're up in Massachusetts um with my sister and her family but normally they're in New York Oh, so did you ever spend any time in New York? Uh, a lot of time. Um, so my dad has been there. Um, so while while we were uh, finishing up, and well, my mother was finishing up her um, her position in the UK. Uh, he moved to New York for a position there at uh, Manhattan College, and where he's the dean of engineering. Um, and, uh, so he's been there for about 10 years, over 10 years. So, um, whenever I was going back to the U S I always moved to, to New York and going to Fort MIP gave me a really an excuse to stay with them and see them. And, um, I really love New York. I really miss New York. Just even looking at pictures of New York right now makes me sad because just the energy and, and the people, and it's just so exciting. And I think that when I finally managed to get home and go to JFK and go through immigration and they say, welcome home, I'm probably going to, you know, start tearing up because it is just one of the best places in the world. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, when did you decide uh, to become a lawyer? Well, my, my mother decided <laughs> that I was going to become a lawyer um, when I was um, doing my chemical engineering degree um, at the University of New Mexico. And that I was doing that because I wanted to become a doctor. So I thought that that was the path for me. Um, I really struggled to try to figure out what I wanted to do because I really loved science and I loved the arts and I loved dance and I loved uh, music but I love chemistry and I like meteorology um, and I was still even struggling with that during that time and she said let's IP will have everything you want because you don't have to really specialize you can learn about everything um, and so I kind of just went on that path and 
and it was it was spurred um, at the time. This is uh, 2001, 2002, uh, by the Napster file sharing litigation. And as a big lover of music, um, and music has been such a huge part of my life. You know, my my parents were children of you know the 60s in Northern California. So we had, you know, the Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, you know, growing up just blaring in the car stereo or on, on the vinyl records. So music has been a huge part of our family. And so, um, you know, subscribers to Rolling Stone and I'd be reading the Rolling Stone articles about this copyright um, litigation brought by the RIAA. And um, I was really just struck by the fact that we had um, a litigation response. I mean, at the time I couldn't put this as articulately, but now I can, a litigation response to a demand from consumers that the business wasn't fulfilling. And instead of um, providing that, um, that uh, business solution, i.e. streaming or on-demand access to um, digital music online, the response was to sue whoever was the ISP holder or whoever, even if the person was the one responsible for it, um, you know, if it was the grandma, uh, sue the grandma because her grandson was using, um, using the computer. And I just thought this is mad, but that got me the kind of the initial introduction to how uh, intellectual property intersects with um, developments in technology and business models and how people consume the arts um, and the, how things change. And I thought, well, this is really fascinating. And so that did, you know, I, I can blame my mom as much as I want as to <laughs> pushing me into IP law. But at the same time, I was thinking, what on earth? This is really interesting. Um, and so that- and how, how that old were you then? me to only focus. I, I was 18. Oh. So okay. I started university when I was 16. So I was, I was only 18. 16. So you yes. must be- a genius or is that <laughs> no no absolutely and absolutely not uh, i i uh really like school and it's a credit to my parents that they made education and learning so part and intrinsic as as to our upbringing so uh, um all right. all right so we're getting to we're actually getting at, out of the background thing but how did you end up at ucl so after my uh, uh, University College London, I'm, I have to myself yeah. not, not use these. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Um, I uh, I finished. It's so three years at Bristol, um, and I throughout the time I knew by the third year I was going to do the intellectual property course. I, I just knew I didn't. I wasn't interested in the corporate world or transactional. It was only IP always. Um, and then after that, um, I really struggled to get a training contract. And um, there was some law at the time, which has now been overturned thanks to challenges in the court system, where it was really hard as a foreigner, a non-UK citizen, to get training contracts or employed by a firm, unless you were like super, super incredible, genius, amazingness, which obviously I was not. Um, <laughs> but um, so it was really hard for me to get employed um, as a foreigner and you know there there was acknowledgement from even various universities we spoke to that said yeah we know that this is a problem but you know we want to attract foreign students because foreign students 
um, have to pay more money intuition wise. And so, you know, this, this was a bit of an outrage. It's not like that anymore because there's been challenges to it. So you cannot discriminate on the basis of nationality for jobs. But at my time, it was very difficult. Um, and so I thought, well, what is going to distinguish me? And my mom, and again, my parents are all, all about um, higher ed. Um, so they said, let's do a master's course. And so the master's course that was going at the time that was just you know, above them all was the one at University College London, UCL. And it was the first year that the late Sir Hugh Laddie, who had left the bench the year previous, um, was leading that master's degree program. And it was the first year of the Institute of Brand and Innovation Law, IBL, the first cohort of um, LMs with a specialism in IP students um, at UCL. And uh, did you get to know Hugh at all in that? Yes. Um, yes, we did. We, we didn't, at the start, we didn't see him that much. We didn't know at the time that um, he was um, tragically suffering from cancer. Um, but he, he, he started to attend more and more lectures. He was actually my advisor for my thesis. Um, and it was so amazing to watch him Kind of delve into a subject where you know we're coming from you know an undergraduate where we don't have that much practical experience we read decisions and we try to figure out what the court has said but we have no idea or at least you know at the time i went to school how that case got to the court we don't know that there was a claim form and we don't know that the parties are instructing solicitors and they're arguing with each other um, so we didn't have that practical context as to why certain things are being argued or not argued. And he put that into context and brought it all to life um, in a way that just made the, the, the subject so interesting. And um, I still have, I recorded all his, his lectures and I still have them somewhere because they were so amazing, um, particularly on patent law, on commercialization of IP. And he brought everyone in, you know, I we were taught by other judges from other jurisdictions and from, you know, the leading barristers. Um, it was, it was really fabulous. And uh, I remember the first one-on-one um, -on -one meeting I had with him when he was, uh, we were talking about what my master's thesis was going to be on. And I gave him kind of an array of topics and just one by one, he was like, nope, 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 without really any <laughs> justification and then he finally landed on one he said do that that's interesting no one's done it kind of no discussion <laughs> and it was on um copyright and orphan works and um it was he was just he just knew kind of you know what had been done before what was going to be interesting and he said you know you're doing that um and uh that you know i was i was very happy to do that topic that was a really interesting topic at the time um you know, uh, Hugh was a little bit of a rebel uh, uh, by uh, judges' standards and lawyer standards. So it was interesting uh, that you got to um, spend some time with him. He, he was a uh, a wonderful person that I got to know him. Um, we yeah. had some differences of opinion on uh, IP law, but. Uh, it was, uh, he was a great guy. 
Um, no, he, 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 he really was. And he was so generous with his time with the students. Um, and you could really see that he really enjoyed kind of what, you know, seeing the spark of interest um, that he could kind of get, get from students. Um, I have, I have, I think I have also within my, my notes, all the kind of Hugh quotes, because there was tons of, <laughs> tons of amazing quotes that he, he would spurn off about, you know, various judges and what he really thought about a decision or what he really thought about the party's arguments, um, which I'll have to dig out sometime. But uh, it was just nice to hear, you know, a case that before was really kind of boring to read on the paper just come to life because of the personalities involved and you did that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that was unusual, that style of teaching anywhere, especially, but also uh, in the UK, uh, London. Uh, all right. Uh, have you ever thought that maybe you'd go back to the United States to do to work or anything else? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and you know, part of the motivation for, for being at a firm like Wilmer Hale now is because of the U.S. Connect connection. I mean, besides all the other amazing attributes. Uh, is because I, I've always wanted to do more of a transatlantic practice between UK and US. And a lot of our cases already have that element anyway. Um, almost all of our cases have a European US dimension to it. Um, and, and I don't think I'll ever not be part of the UK ecosystem and part of the legal profession and practicing here. But I do want to do more um, in terms of the exchange between the two, because I, I miss home as well. And, you know, I miss my family and um, I miss my people. <laughs> so I definitely, um, I am looking to that in terms of, of future planning. All right, so you've seen, okay, just let's look at Europe. What, is there any strong differences in approach to IP in the UK, as opposed to France, as opposed to Brussels, as opposed to Spain. Uh, you know, it's supposed to be all the same, but of course, uh, it's difficult when they had different cultures and then you're trying to bring those together. Have you noticed anything today that if, if this case was brought here, you'd probably have a different result than if it was brought here, uh, or is it becoming more harmonized? Um, I think it's becoming more harmonized. Um, I think that is a lot in credit to the fact that the judges are talking to each other a lot more about cases that they're involved in, whether it's the same parallel case or whether it's a similar issue in a, a related case. Um, they are, they are noticing what each other are doing in judgments, how they're addressing issues, and where they choose to, you know, decide to um, decide a case in a way that's maybe inconsistent with the conclusion. They will, you know, often but not always say, you know, I've read the Dutch decision and they came into a different view than I have, but, you know, you know, I have the benefit of cross-examination cross of expert witnesses, for example, you know, over a course of three days or whatever. Um, so they're, they're more sensitive to that. And, and I think sensitive and not, um, you know, just, just, you know, issuing decision that's completely out of the field without having at least a regard as to what else is going on. Um, 
And we've had to depend on them a lot. You know, the UPC Unified Patent Court um, was meant to, you know, uh, kind of almost codify that exchange and to harmonize, at least from the patent profession, um, these types of issues. But even without that, I think that, you know, the benefit of the, the judges in the European system just communicating with each other has lent, lent to a, a good degree of harmonization. But I think where the differences really do start to come in is that procedural law, um, where there is, you know, a complete lack of harmonization across all, you know, Europe. And the European Commission has always had a really difficult time in um, establishing directives or regulations on substantive law where actually some of the treatment and of IP issues comes down to procedural issues such as availability of evidence, you know, treatment of confidential information proceedings, things that are you know, more civil procedural in nature. Um, so I think that's where a lot of the, the, the differences in how IP is, is litigated um, still remain. So in terms of uh, your clients, and you're taking that into account as to where to sue or, yes? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, always, always depends first, you know, what is the client's objective? You know, do they want a quick and fast win? Do they want a quick injunction? Go to Germany. Do they want, you know, a, a judgment that might have some benefit in being exported um, that will have a specialist judge looking at the issues? Go to the UK. Um, do you want um, pre-action disclosure that you might be able to use in different jurisdictions if you get the permission from the court? Go to the UK. Uh, so there's there's various tools, substantive and procedural, that are available in jurisdictions across Europe, um, in which I include the UK in that definition, that can really you know enter into how your overall strategic planning in terms of you know I'm going to issue in the Netherlands on day one, and then given that I know how long those proceedings are going to take, we're might going to get a Dutch decision here that will impact our negotiation to try to reach settlement. But at the same time, I'm going to increase leverage, so I'm going to issue in the UK on day 22. You do all that kind of mapping to figure out, you know, how best to use the procedural tools and substantive tools to your advantage to try to hopefully reach a great settlement uh, or reach whatever commercial objective your client wants to get. That's And that's the goal of lawyers now is to really know not what's going on at your own nose in your own borders, but what else is going on next door in France or Germany. Interesting. Now, that was a very sophisticated examination. How many lawyers do you think go through that? Or are you uh, among the few that actually would go through all that analysis before bringing a case? Um, for marketing purposes, I would like to say I'm one of the you and you therefore you should, you should instruct me but I I would say that you know if you're if you're a good lawyer if you're a good global IP litigator um you are doing that all the time um you you cannot just be I'm a U.S. lawyer I'm a French lawyer you have to you have to be wider than that um I, I don't know if all lawyers are as interested in looking at the procedural issues of, of litigating in Germany, for example. Um, but, you know, there are organizations that um, like AIPPI, that is an acronym, but it's the Association for the Protection of Intellectual Property, um, that uh, look at the, these kind of comparative issues. Um, and so there is a 
you know, that organization, all the people who are members of it, love it so much they want to know about what's going on in other, in other countries. Uh, 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 so but I would really, yeah, yeah but I, I, I don't know. Maybe this is a question, <laughs> if I can ask a question of you, Hugh, how many U.S. lawyers are that au fait with European substantive law and procedure? I think in Europe, we're, we're a little bit more aware because we, we're kind of close to each other, but I don't know if that's just I think very few. European. Or... I think very few. I think actually one of the problems even now, and this is what I try to uh, emphasize in uh, my classes is you have a problem, what's the best way to solve it and where? And a lot of lawyers just want to bring it where their office is. Uh, one is it guarantees they're going to keep the case, but uh, you would keep it, you, and I tell them, you, you, okay, you're telling the client, you know, this is actually, we could bring this here, it'd be better for us. Don't worry about supervising. I'll supervise, we'll get a local counsel, we'll do all this, but your chances of success are this, um, yeah, so I, th I actually think um, an international, I'm, I'm talking about even domestic, when you're trying to think mm -hmm. of, uh, of venues, like for instance, Oracle brought its case in the Northern District of California. They might as well t take a gun and shoot themselves in the head. Uh, the worst possible place to bring that case. One of the best would be the Central District of California, Southern District of New York, but that's where the lawyers were and that's where the company was. And they just said, okay. So there's an example of even at the highest levels, they're not thinking, in my view anyway, enough of these, these situations. And then if you're talking about Europe, you know, I started this uh, IP conference. Um, 28, I think I've heard of it. 28 years ago. Um, and it was kept up in the beginning, not by US. I, I had a, a dean who was very supportive, and uh, uh, but you know I, I can't really give you much money. In fact, uh, this or that, and I'll loan you some money, this or that, because the chance of it surviving, because of, you know a lot of international and his view that no one's going to want that, uh, and so in the beginning, actually, it was kept alive by people from the UK and others, lawyers who wanted it and supported it and everything else. And then gradually, but even to this day, um, there are you know copyright lawyers in the United States who have never been to the conference. So it, it's, uh, you can make a very good living in the United States without thinking about Europe or, uh, and, not, and unfortunately not even thinking about other venues in the United States. But um, so I think it's, one of the things I've really felt good about my career is I've gotten to know all these things. And actually when I mm -hmm. do consulting, I, I can just, some of the things you're talking about, I can do that and, and be of use to people. Um, but anyway, let's get back to you. Um, who, who, what is your favorite conference and your favorite person in IP in the whole world? I mean, this is a neutral question. No, I never oh, mind. I, obviously, I, I know the answer. You don't even have to say it. Okay, uh, good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad uh, it goes without being said. Yes, I think so. Uh, 
Okay, what is, in, in terms of your practice, hmm. which is mostly European, how often do you think about, okay, what's the implications in the United States of all this? Every day, <laughs> every day at the moment anyway. Um, uh, and, and it has been like that for, for many years. I remember, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not as well seasoned as you know, many of your other guests, but even I've been practicing for, you know, over 10 years. But even at the start of that, um, the perception was U.S. is a huge market. We do what we do here. Europe is, a, is an afterthought. But yet everything that we did in Europe, we always had to think, how is this going to affect the U.S.? But we never really felt that whatever happens in the U.S., people there were really thinking about how that was going to impact litigation in Europe. Um, so we, at least, you know, uh, speaking on my behalf, I've always had a thought as to how something's going to play in U.S. litigation because often the UK cases or the German cases were going to get a decision before a US case. Generally, if things were started the same day, um, depending you know, what kind of rocket docket you might be in in the US or, or not, um, you can generally get a decision quicker in some jurisdictions. Um, so I've always thought about that. I, hold I think on, it's hold only on, hold, just hold on, hold on a second. Yeah. Where do you get the decision uh, quicker, Europe or the US? Assuming things are started on day one at the same time, you can get a decision generally quicker in the UK or in Germany. Yeah, 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 Germany is yeah, yeah. a lot quicker. That that is subject to there, for example, being, you know, some really speedy dockets in some places in the US where the judges are really trying to get things going. Um, but um so we've always had to think about how our decisions might be used or impact the litigation in the U.S. Um, it's only been recently that I think that the U.S. litigators are more conscious as to whatever they do here, even if it's just motion practice. Whatever they do in the U.S. might have an impact in how things are being argued in, in the U.K. Um, and you are you are seeing the kind of permutation of things that have been brought up in the U.S. impacting us more or being raised more um, in European litigation. So you I find think that's, that, why? I just, I think I, I'm finding that in the last few years, US lawyers are really understanding that we, we have to, we have no. to be on the same page. Are you speaking about patent lawyers or, or all IP lawyers? I think all IP lawyers, um, uh, you know, I think it, it comes up more in patent litigation because there's more parallel litigation. Uh, I'm trying to think of an example where there's been a parallel copyright case in recent years um, that has gotten to the stage of, of a trial. But um, I think I think definitely all IP. Uh, you can't not because your businesses, your clients are operating globally. So you cannot think that one decision in the U.S. is not going to impact them somehow in, in Europe. Uh, okay, Brexit. What, what effect will that have on practices, do you think? Or is it already having a, an anticipation? I mean, it, the fact that it hasn't actually, there's a destination date of when all this is going to happen. Has it already happened or not with Brexit? Well, we've, we've, uh, we're gone. We're no longer a member of the European Union. Um, there are various kind of checkpoints as to when we need to do certain things. I'm not, 
I, to be honest, I think with everyone else, I have Brexit fatigue. Um, <laughs> I, it's been such a mess that um, it's, it's kind of hard to figure out what else we haven't done that we should have done in the many years before this with the, how many millions of pounds spent on, you know, bus, you know, bus stop advertising about getting ready for Brexit. Um, but in terms of the impact on the profession, I think uh, too early to tell. Um, I think the UK litigation, IP litigation market will, I think, always be pretty strong. Uh, we've always been kind of the central hub for a lot of, you know, coordination pieces, strategy work, because we speak English, we are part of a common law system, we're in a time zone, that's really nice that we can deal with, you know, West Coast or with Asia. Um, so we've always been kind of an attractive kind of go-to shop for uh, clients who want to, you know, people that are know a lot about different jurisdictions to help, help them with their global strategy work. Um, so I think there will always be a market for that. Um, you know, the impact will be if the unified patent court ever gets up and running, what that will do because with the UK not participating in that anymore. Um, so there, there are questions about, you know, patent litigation practices and uh, UK only patent boutiques that don't have kind of an uh, office in Europe. So they don't have a hedge in their, their business model to, um, to alleviate that. But that, that's something that we're going to be seeing, you know, you know, 15, 20, 30 years. I don't see that being an, an immediate impact. I mean, the immediate impact for us in IP is issues of, you know, border control and our clients having issues with getting their products in and out and the tax and tariffs and increased burden of all that. The actual, the business of, of IP is having more of an impact than I would say the practice. Um, and, you know, if I could just add one more thing, which is, you know, our judges have always been very commercial as to, you know, making sure that our courts and our practices are fit for purpose in a commercial age to attract litigants. Um, and we, we've seen that in recent decisions. Um, I mean, on Wire Planet is very much a decision, um, not to go into, you know, nuances on that, a decision that will, that attracts litigants to our market. And we've seen other, other cases that have done that. So I don't think the impact on our profession will be too great in the immediate future, but I think we will see some impact moving on. Well, do you think actually your Supreme Court did that purposely to attract business after a Brexit? Um, a cynical person might say that, and whether mm -hmm. I'm a cynical person or not, you all have to judge for yourself. Um, but it definitely had the effect. It definitely had the effects. Uh, I, I saw some, I read some article in one of the IP magazines recently that somebody said, oh, we haven't seen a major uptick. And I, I, <laughs> I definitely disagree with that. If you look at the number of cases um, in the FRAN SED space that are being issued in the UK. Uh, if you can come to one, a one-stop shop and get a global license, why wouldn't you? Uh, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's great for, for business. Is it the best solution and is it creating friends in other jurisdictions across the world? No, um, but it's, it's what we have right now. So I, I guess we have to thank them for, the, for that impact, I guess. All right, this is an, one interesting thing I've found is, uh, you know, the whole system, the common law system, we were based on a common law system because I can't say you guys, because you claim actually 
still some American uh, aspects to it. But um, then you have the civil system, no, no, no precedents, this, 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 and the opinions are this long, just facts mm -hmm. result. Um, but what I think now is happening, and that's, this is because what works, works. Basically, serious jurisdictions, whether they say it or not, are common law countries now. They're looking at precedents, they're looking at policy, they're making decisions. Um, uh, they're not calling it that, but that's it. So if you're gonna do international litigation, uh, you have to be aware that you have to convince people it's the right thing. It's not just that there's some doctrine uh, to do it, especially now when gazillion people are affected by these. So they have to think about what's good as opposed to just what the doctrine says. Uh, so it's an interesting, it's an, I think that anyway is a fairly interesting development. Uh, okay. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Apparently, you know, I'm a big fan of hers and uh, apparently you are as well. Huge, huge fan. Um, very sad as well. Um, I, it, it was um, the 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 news when um, of 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 her death last um, last year was one of those things that I wasn't sleeping very well that night. But then I noticed my phone was blowing up, and from all over the world, men and women were just. And you know, all my friends were, uh, and colleagues just couldn't believe it. And that was testament to the fact of such a huge presence in the legal profession, for one, you know, um, but also her using her voice and her intellect to make things better. Um, and she 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 just took that fight to such a elevated place of of argument and, and uh, passion and um, kind of succinct advocacy that um, she made such a huge difference in you know, all of her decisions and, and, and her dissents um, that it felt like um, she was fighting on behalf of us all. And so when you lose a figure like that, especially for, for me as a woman, um, in the profession, um, it felt like we lost somebody who had been protecting us and kind of fending off kind of the, the evil that can happen in, in, in any society. Um, so, I mean, I am a huge, huge fan. Um, and, it, you know, her loss is definitely felt every day. Um, but what, what I think it did was, in a sense, it, you know, her, what she did was instilled in us already, um, but her passing kind of awakened in us that fight that she already had and that she'd been waging for so long. Um, and so I think I'm, I, you know, I just feel like a lot of us have more voice and more agency to kind of continue on her legacy. So um, although the, the loss is great, um, it's the, the space is, is, is there that we're taking, we're taking the baton from her. Um, yeah. I don't think I'll see another another person like her in my lifetime. Um, yeah. She was, you know, um, truly, truly spectacular. Yeah, she's uh, was an amazing person with, and had an, a 
fantastic effect. She was, which is, you can be an amazing person and have relatively little effect, but she was an amazing person and had a large effect. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a big loss. Uh, so, uh, I'm coming out of law school now in the US. Is there any reason why I should go over to Europe and try to get an advanced degree or practice there? I mean, I understand some people have done that uh, or uh, now, Oh, another way of saying that is, would you change anything in the way your last 10, 15 years or whatever? No, I wouldn't. I, there's nothing I would change. Um, it wasn't always the easiest because I'm still an American in a foreign country, um, in a, a very special foreign country like the UK. So it wasn't always the easiest, um, but the opportunity to learn and to learn not just about the UK, but our, you know, our neighboring continental European systems has been profound. And that is something that we discussed earlier that you know, has been uh, missing from either domestic or either kind of an international practice perspective from the US. So, but is now increasingly uh, important, increasingly demanded by clients. So I would say to um, those leaving the, um, the US um, law schools to consider looking further afield than the US market. If, if that's if that's what they want, you know, there's some people that want to stay local or they would just want to do, you know, certain areas of law, and that's great. But if you want in a career in IP, you have to be global and you have to be international now. I don't see how you can serve your clients without that element. Um, and you need the, to get really practical hands-on experience. There's nothing to say that you shouldn't go to the UK or go to France if you know the language or you know somewhere else. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You were sounding reasonable for a while. <laughs> go to France? Well, why not? Why not? If you well, know the language, I know people who've done it. I know people, American lawyers who've gone and and spend a year or two in France practicing uh, as a foreign lawyer. So why not? Yeah, they probably were, you know, that's because they had a girlfriend or boyfriend in France, uh, if I had to guess. Uh, no, I have, I think it's interesting, but I think uh, France is one of your more insular, I think, countries, because it's culturally different, and, and especially in IP, they look at different ways of why you should have IP, and one was, they started out as very bright people and do things that's part of their personality, we have to protect that. Um, I have, I, you know, I love going to Paris. Uh, I walk along the Seine and I feel like I'm in love or should be in love or something like that. And the, <laughs> the, 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 the uh, you know, uh, and I had interactions with some French people uh, that were very good. Um, but so I'm thinking, and I haven't done this yet is, in this period of after the pandemic and everyone's this to this to this to this, you know, actually just go over to the UK and go to UCL or whatever for a year and come back. But that year you're gonna absorb an incredible yeah. amount of stuff about what's going on there, much more than mm -hmm. if you just spent a year of practice there. So- Oh, I um, agree. Yeah. 
I agree. I fully, I fully support anyone doing a master's in law, uh, especially master's of law in a different country. Um, that was the, probably the, the single most important year of my academic career. And, you know, in terms of what you absorb from, you know, the actual jurisdiction in which you are in, but, you know, those, those classes, I did comparative everything, you know, comparative copyright, comparative trademark, there's comparative competition law, where you look at, you know, the laws of France and why we're so different from our conception of intellectual property and what's there to do. <laughs> but those are so important. Those are so important. Um, and even, you know, even now, you know, as a practicing lawyer, when we have to deal with issues of foreign law in our, in our cases, I find it can sometimes, you know, you can tell people who've studied French law at, you know, a master's or undergraduate level, because they kind of understand how a French lawyer would see things or how a Spanish lawyer would see things and how that might just be different from how an English lawyer might perceive might? things. And how, yeah, <laughs> I was just using the word might sarcastically. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, well, definitely we'll see things differently and how we need to communicate that to a judge as to why it's different. Um, and if you don't have that language, uh, and all, all law is a language, you know, law is a language, but UK law is a specific language, French law is a specific language. You don't have exposure to that language. It's very hard to understand what the differences are or where the similarities lay and how to convince a judge, you know, why it's important. And uh, wholly, wholly agree with you, Hugh. A year at UCL doing your master's in intellectual property law or whatever, that, that is definitely definitely not a wasted year. It will serve you in good stead. Good. Um, I, you, know, you mentioned this AIPPI, International Association for the Protection of Intellectual Property. What is it based in Switzerland? What, what is the base for that organization? It's in Switzerland. It yeah. is um, the best way I describe it to people who don't know about it is that it's essentially a model UN for intellectual property. So it's organized by national groups and, or regional groups, um, national groups, and each year they will set four questions and there'll be one on patents, one on trademarks, one on copyright, and then like a free-for-all. And these questions, and there's a long list of questions, like for example, uh, how, uh, how is copyright liability in the context of um, ISPs um, dealt with in your country and they have a list of questions and every national group has to answer it on the basis of their law and then um, somebody some poor person has to look at all of these submissions and figure out okay where are the commonalities between the approach under French or German or U.S. or Canadian law and what is the resolution um, that we could draft that everyone can vote on and agree and then you go to the Congress and there you are like a model UN you have your, I go for on behalf of the UK group. We sit at a table that have UK flags. Behind us are the Americans with their US flags. Always very enjoyable and raucous behind us. Um, there's always some scheming and dealings going on between different countries. Usually you have the Japanese and the Germans talking to each other because they have similar, similar legal systems. It is, it is so much fun and actually really enjoyable. Um, but we're all so passionate about IP that we want to know about each other's, um, you know, treatments of different issues of IP in order to get to a common understanding of what, 
what can we all agree on? What is the best way to harmonize or to align our positions on, on IP? And then you vote or you have major arguments uh, <laughs> between different national groups and then you get a resolution. Um, so we were talking about before, you know, who are the people that know a lot about um, the, the laws or procedural issues in Belgium? It'll be somebody at AIPPI because we will have argued on that point at some point or read their, their papers. So if anyone's interested in international uh, kind of comparative IP, that, that's the place to look. Uh, how come I've heard so little about them? If they're this dynamic, I would have think in all my travels and everything else, is it more academic in a sense that it's interesting when I do this, but what, how do they have, or do they have an effect on what people do in Europe in terms of the, or the US in terms of the law? Very few organizations would have an effect, but is that, are they going for what is the perfect thing idealistically, or are they going for what can work in reality, I think I think where would they end up? Because you know the people that are showing up for the most part are in-house or practitioners, so they know kind of what's realistic as to what could be achieved. Um, the The outcome of the resolutions, you know, are are used as a tool, and, and it, it's you know I can only speak of from the UK perspective that if there is uh, legislative reform going on, if the UK IPO is looking at specific issues related to a topic that maybe AIPPI has discussed, we will say, you know, hey, you should look at this because we, it was a survey of all the countries and they all agreed that at the very minimum, the law should be this. So if you're looking at legislative reform, you need to keep that in mind because we don't want to be, you know, a tiny island in the middle of nowhere <laughs> taking a completely random approach. How do you get access to this? I think you have to be a member of the organization. You have to be a member. How it works? You're a member of what a you're a member of the organization, but you're a member of the national group. So you'd be a member of, for example, the U.S. group. Um, and, and, and and what do then we do stuff in the U.S. and then? Mm -hmm. oh. So it's it's just like you're getting ready for a UN a United Nations meeting. You 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 get your your topic that you know you're going to have to debate with all the other countries. No, yeah, you figure no, out what the U.S. position is, and you go in and fight it. Yeah, yeah. Ansley, <laughs> you couldn't have used a worse analogy because the U.N. is considered irre irrelevant to most people now. Not in the past. Um, all right. So, what does it cost to join this organization? It 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 depends. Um, it's set by the national groups. Um, and depends how statistically um, conservative or not they are as to how much they charge. Well, what's a ballpark um, figure? Well, if for in the UK, I mean, if uh, for you know, uh, they do it like under thirty fives. I think it's like I think I'm going to get fired by somebody at AIPPI for this. I think maybe like forty pounds or something. Oh, it's nothing. Pounds. It's not very it's much. It's peanuts. Yeah. No, it's not like thousands. No, it's everything's like under a hundred uh, for Alisa's. It's under a hundred pounds. But and how many um, people are in this? I don't organization? know what it is. How many people do you think are in this organization? Members of the. I really organization. wish I would have studied the. You should. You should have done a little bit of homework before you came here. Well, I didn't know this was coming up. Um, thousands, thousands. Um, okay. So when we have congresses, congresses, we have an annual congress each year. Um, there'll be, you know, sometimes five thousand people showing. And where is that? If it's in a great. Is that 
all over the world. So um, before the pandemic, um, we had one in London and then last year we were meant to have one in China. Um, but uh, next year, 2022, we'll be in San Francisco, I believe. So you'll have to come. So you're screwing over China. I think we're, I think it's notionally kind of an online Chinese oh, um, oh, they, event. Oh, so you had it. Yeah, the, okay, okay. So yeah, you had I, it. I, I so you had the event. It, yes. I didn't go, but I was in, I was in trial, but yeah. Okay. It's all over the world. All right. In terms of your own practice, uh, is it mostly motion practice? Is it mostly talking to clients? Uh, is it actually you're in a court? arguing uh, or it's all above or what? Uh, all of the above. Um, as a solicitor, I don't do uh, any advocacy on my feet in court unless I have special permission from the judge. We have the barristers do that. And uh, although I would very much like to, to be on my feet, we're arguing various things. Um, but it's a, it's a mixture of all of that. Um, we do a lot of interim applications um, or motion, motion practice. Um, we do a huge, I do a huge amount of uh, strategy coordination with various jurisdictions, um, client management, um, business development, every, everything. I think, you know, as, Increasingly so for for the next generation of lawyers coming coming in, um, where before I think you could have maybe gotten away with you know just being a really great trial advocate or a really great um, you know churner of, of work or a really great winner you know breadwinner or um, a rainmaker, um, you have to be good at everything, and that's I think that's it's expecting a lot um, from one person, but you have to be able to do everything increasingly. Uh, are you the best lawyer you've ever met? <laughs> um, absolutely not. That I ever met? Uh, no, no, not even that I ever met. I mean, obviously there's, you know, Justice Ginsburg was probably the best lawyer I... Uh, I was thinking, I'm not sure that she would be as effective as an in-practice lawyer as opposed to an academic and judge and everything else. But you... Uh, uh, it would seem to me it'd be, be pretty hard to find someone better than you. And that's well, 50, I will. That, that's I, I will put that on my directory quote if I can. <laughs> if I can, you. Um, no, there's so many talented people, but I think this next generation of of lawyers are are having to do everything that all at once. They have to be great at marketing. They have to be great at training. They have to be all this, that, and the other. Um, so there's real, real stiff competition um, for that. But I thank you for the, the, the compliment. Um, I have many flaws, I assure you. <laughs> okay. Uh, by the way, when did we start this? Did you look at the time? We started it at about uh, 4, 16, 4, 17. About an hour. Um. We didn't start at four. It was, I think it was. No, no, it was four eleven. No, I think it was eleven. Don't give me this UK time. This thing is based in the United States, the good old United States. <laughs> We're going to stick with U.S. time. Okay, I, I got it. Now, IP. The last thing we we are actually running out of time. Um, IP cat. Mm. Um, 
Does tell me a little bit about what you think is the best thing about it, and if anything can get better. The the best thing about it is the the purpose, which is to exchange information about IP from whatever jurisdiction, from whatever perspective in an open manner. It's free, nobody gets paid for it. Um, people who write for it, whether it's you know permanent staff or guests, they do it because they love IP um, and that genders this, this completely open exchange of ideas and debate. So it's what Jeremy really wanted for IPCAT was to create a forum where ideas and different ways of doing things are communicated and shared in order to identify what might be the best way to do something or the better way to do something. So that's really great. And, the, you know, in a, a time where, you know, for really legitimate and good reasons, a lot of the IP resources are behind paywalls and you have to pay for it, it continues to be an open resource, particularly for students to, to be able to search and get the information that they need. So that's, that's the best thing. Um, what could be better is to get more input from other jurisdictions that have been neglected. You know, we're good about doing the UK, main jurisdictions, IP jurisdictions in Europe and, and the US, but our readership is coming a lot more from Asia um, and from Africa. And we need to be, you know, making sure that we are incorporating those cases and those stories um, as part of our exchange. Okay. Um, five years from now, how will it be dramatically different, the same but just better, or what? The world generally? No, or... IPCAT. Oh, IPCAT. <laughs> That's like we have another election to get through. Um, <coughs> I, think, I think it will be better. Um, each year, we, we continue to improve, continue to find different ways to engage with our audience. Um, I think we'll have new new voices coming in and new generation of IP lawyers coming in um, from other jurisdictions. So it it will it will definitely get better. But everything can get better. Everything can improve. There's not any pinnacle of perfection. So every year we try to do that. Okay. Well, um, I was tempted there when you said the elections. I was going to ask what effect they will have on practice of law, but we could be on that maybe, I don't know. <laughs> um, I, well, what they continue to have on the practice of law, oh my goodness, yeah. Well, in terms of- what I, Well, what I will say about the elections, which I think is important, is that I think increasingly, you know, what, what it has put into focus for a lot of lawyers, not just in the US, but across the world, uh, including IP lawyers, is doing things that are a service, not just to IP in the profession, but a service to the community. So I'm seeing increasingly more IP lawyers to step away from, you know, the their IP work and take time out to do other things that are important for their communities. So um, that can only but be a good thing for the profession generally. Yeah, I agree. And on that upbeat note, <laughs> I want to thank you very much. This is, I've really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm hoping that those who are watching or listening uh, uh, did as well. And so thank you very much.
Well, it was a privilege and, and an honor, Hugh, for being invited. I, I almost feel like it's too early in my career to have been invited to such an esteemed, esteemed podcast, but um, thank you very much. I had a lot of fun. And I'm, you know, I had real doubts about bringing you, but now, <laughs> as it turns out, I thought you were, I'm joking, of course, but it was, I really, I thought this, this was fantastic. I very much enjoyed it. So stay okay. safe. And uh, thank you. Uh, let's keep in touch.